Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only, right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens with host Nate Wilcox. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. You can now follow us on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and we'd love to hear what you think, so don't be shy about tweeting at us or commenting on our website. This week, author Dan Charnas returns to tell Nate more about his book, The Big Payback, The History of the Business of Hip-Hop. In this episode, Dan describes the emergence of West Coast gangster rap and the backlash that ensued after Time Warner released a song called Cop Killer by Ice-T's heavy metal side project, Body Count. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. time to let it roll. I'm joined today once again by Dan Charnas, author of The Big Payback, The History of the Business of Hip Hop. Welcome, Dan. Hello. And thanks for coming back. Last time we talked about uh, Sugar Hill Records and Def Jam, and this time I want to go to the West Coast. Your book is epic and comprehensive, and so uh, take another bite at the apple here. But you, you tell the story of how West Coast rap and hip hop got going, and you start with the tale of a DJ named Alonzo Williams. Tell us about this guy and why why you picked him to start with. Well, I think Alonzo um, was really ground zero in terms of hip-hop entrepreneurship um, in Los Angeles. Um, It's Alonzo who also symbolizes what really LA hip hop was about very closely tied into the car culture. Um, so he literally starts as sort of the DJ for his car club. Um, and then from there sort of assembles uh, kind of a crew of mobile DJs. And that was another sort of uh, uh, really interesting thing about 
L.A. hip hop versus New York hip hop. That New York hip hop was essentially geographically based, right, uh, or neighborhood based, or even like playground or building based. Like you know, Africa Bambata was in the Bronx River projects, and we, when you wanted to find Bam, that's where he was, right? Um, of course, Bam moved around a lot <laughs> later on, but like to start. But for L.A. Um, it was really about these mobile parties. So that is what Alonzo helped to pioneer along with folks like Uncle Jam. I think Roger Clayton was his uh, given name. And so these guys all knew each other. Uh, and it just so happens that uh, in Alonzo's crew of DJs, uh, there came a young man named uh, Andre Young, and we know him today as Dr. Dre of NWA, the chronic death row and beats fame. Uh, so really the genesis of so much of what we have in the business now started with Alonzo and his crew. Um, and so the story in the big payback is the story of, you know, what Alonzo creates and what he goes through to, um, turn the world-class wrecking crew, his, his crew of DJs into an actual recorded music act and how he deals with the fact that there's another kind of artistry that's emerging, um, you know, in Dre's hands that comes to be called gangster rap that he's trying to manage or in some way sort of move away from. And that's how, how Alonzo Williams sort of loses out on cashing in on that, on what LA rap becomes, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And you've got a really pithy anecdote about exactly how Lonzo lost out on Dr. Dre to a guy named Eric Wright. What yeah. happened there? Well, what happened was uh, Dr. Dre was not the most responsible individual when it came to paying his parking fines and speeding tickets. And I guess um, it just so happened that, Dre either missed a gig or a session or something and needed Alonzo to sort of, Alonzo was his go-to person to sort of bail him out. And Alonzo had it up to here. Said, I'm not bailing you out. Go ahead, stay in jail. And uh, so he turned to uh, local small businessman, uh, Eric Wright, EZE, to give him the money to bail him out. And in return for that um, bail money, um, he he got Dre to agree to produce a record for him. And so that became the first Eazy-E record, which led to the sort of NWA concept, which included Eazy-E, Ren, Dre, and another rapper, uh, Ice Cube. And, 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 I can't forget DJ Yellow. Of course. And, uh, and uh, this, you also talk about the way that an unusual, not quite a record company, um, became the nexus for all of these records, something called McCola Records. Tell us about them a little bit. Um, well, again, it's an interesting contrast to New York. I mean, New York uh, hip-hop, Very, there were a number of different record companies, established record companies, uh, that were responsible for distributing, recording and distributing early hip-hop. In L.A., it was much more of a do-it-yourself kind of vibe. If you had a crew um, and you wanted to record, 
you'd pay for the recording yourself and then you'd go get it pressed up yourself. And so there was a place in LA called Macola Records, essentially a record plant that had the additional benefit of being tied into some regional distributors around the country. So Macola not only had relationships with um, independent distributors in Los Angeles who then got those records into record stores, indie record stores, but um, they also had relationships with people in the South and in the Midwest and in the Bay Area. And so if you pressed up a record, if you had McCullough pressing up your record, they could also distribute it for a fee. And so that is how a Los Angeles group called the Two Live Crew ended up as a Miami group because McCullough had relationships with uh, record stores in Miami. And then uh, the Two Live Crew's record became a hit down there. And so the Two Live Crew transplanted themselves to from Los Angeles to Miami met a guy named Luther Campbell, who then became sort of the de facto leader of the group. And that started the Miami bass sound, which is really just an offshoot of, of the electro hip hop sound that was very popular in LA at the time. So world-class wrecking crew, two live crew, ice T NWA, all these groups, and then Bay area groups like, um, digital underground, right? too short, all got their start putting their records through Macola, pressing them up there and then having Macola distribute them. And the interesting thing about Macola is that the guy who ran Macola really didn't see himself as a record entrepreneur. So he didn't really get a piece of any of this stuff. Wasn't the most um, forward thinking businessman when it came to that. So that is essentially, you know, the, the rise and fall of uh, Macola Records, but a defining piece of the L.A. hip hop music scene. And let's hear a little bit of that electro hop. This is uh, the world class wrecking crew surgery. Rates will prescribe for you is potent elixir to turn table speakers and a mixer will rock your party wherever you be. Calling Dr. Dre to surgery. And that was the world-class wrecking crew, Lonzo Williams Group, with Dr. Day, Dr. Dre on the turntables. And yeah, this is this is a whole sound I was oblivious to because I, I didn't get hit to West Coast rap until Ice T and NWA. And right. certainly didn't know that Two Live Crew originally came from L.A. And so, yeah, when you hear this and then you hear Two Live Crew, uh, you know, and the way you link it back to Africa Bombata, it all suddenly makes sense. Mm-hmm. And then but then the sound immediately gets harder and some harder players come in. A guy named Jerry Heller uh, and Easy e forms his own label, but they they link up with something called Priority Records and McCullough pays the price for not locking people down on con- contracts. That's correct. And one of the first things they cut is Fuck the Police, which is an underground hit before they even re- release it. At this point, are people beginning to see what's coming down the pike? Well, uh, when you say see what's coming down the pike, do you mean um, what comes to be called gangster rap? 
both gangster rap and the reaction to gangster rap. I think fuck the police is when you really start to see the first reaction, but there are some records that are important in the genre or the subgenre before then. Um, there is, uh, you know, obviously ice T's six in the morning, there's easy E's boys in the hood, even before six in the morning, school D in Philadelphia had done some kind of hard, uh, you know, uh, sort of quasi gangster rhymes. So there had been something of a precedent for this stuff. Just as the police was really like very explicitly calling out law enforcement. And as they're starting to perform this stuff, the police get wind of it. And so it becomes a bit of a, you know, uh, a bit of a harassment, you know, for NWA, especially to become nationally distributed through priority. Um, you know, there is advanced word being uh, being put out, you know, on these guys. Yeah. And also the there's it's sort of ironic that one of the first hip hop shows to be marred by violence is a run DMC show in L.A. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Was that do you feel like it was just a coincidence that any african-american performer that was hitting la around that time would have gotten sucked into the burgeoning gang violence or was there something about hip-hop that you think helped trigger that there was definitely nothing about hip-hop that triggered that um what what it was was and not even gang culture per se because there was um some violence at venues in New York where there wasn't as much gang activity anywhere, nearly as much gang organized gang activity as there was in LA. What it's really about is just a bunch of, you know, knuckleheads coming to a place where they know people are going to have fun. And there's going to be a lot of people with their favorite clothes on and jewelry on, and they're going there to get paid and make trouble. I mean, that's essentially what it is. It's just like, um, Bands of, of uh, landlocked pirates coming through, stick-up kids coming through uh, to sort of rob folks. That's what that is. It has nothing to do with the music. It has everything to do with the socioeconomic uh, and geographic uh, sort of circumstances of the audience for this particular music. And when performers like Ice-T or NWA played who actually had links in the community with the criminal element, were they able to diffuse that or, or prevent that from happening with their connections and their muscle? Or did they just uh, – how, how come it was Run DMC that got punked, basically? Uh, well, it has nothing to do with who's on the show. They don't care who's on the show. You know, folks are going to get paid. They just care about, you know – what stuff is there for them to, to get. I mean, uh, um, in LA it was also about rival crews sort of finding a, a place to meet. Um, but it had nothing to do with the artists run DMC. Uh, and by the way, easy E and IT had no significant, uh, ties with any organized crime, um, or, or gangs for that matter. Yeah. They just were rapping about it. Like Woody Guthrie singing about Pretty Boy Floyd. Yeah, they're artists. Yeah, if and they, so if they were gangs, if they were really gangsters at heart, they would have they would have remained so. 
So McCullough, talk a little bit about the nature of of why McCullough wasn't able to become a long term player because they just they were a distributor. They didn't have contracts with the bands, and one by one, other labels came along and snatched up all their performers. Yes, well, um, in order to be in the record business long term, you have to own a piece of something. You have either have to own a piece of the song, or you have to own the masters. And McCullough did not own anything, uh, and so. Uh, when Brian Turner, who owned a small record label called Priority, encountered uh, this music, uh, you know, he, you know, made a bid for ownership of the masters. So that's what put Priority in business. Priority owned, and not only that, not only owned the masters, but also to have an exclusive recording contract with the artist so that the next record they did had to legally was contractually bound to be through priority. Um, and it's Jerry Heller who's sort of the middleman in this in, in the sense that he, uh, he manages the group and he is also an employee of, uh, EZE who owns a record company called ruthless, which then subcontracts is the subcontractor to priority in this case. And tell us a little bit about Heller's background. Um, Heller's background. Um, well, I do know that he started out, I believe the agency business or the, the management business, one or the other. Uh, and, um, Heller, uh, is called to McCola, um, by, I think his partner, Maury Alexander saying, Hey, you got to come down here and see what, you know, these, the, 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 the stuff that these, these kids are doing, you know? And so essentially Jerry Heller and his partner, Maury Alexander start to cherry pick the artists and records on that are being distributed by McCola to actually sign them up for either management. Well, sign them up for management. And then Heller goes with easy E exclusively. And, you know, most people portray Jerry Heller as this sort of master manipulator, he was easy E's, you know, employee, essentially, uh, and that's, in, in this record. Yeah, and that's something I find fascinating about reading this book, because, you know, our show is mostly focused so far on the 50s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and you never would have seen an African-American owning the company until Motown. You, you didn't see that uh, African-American ownership with major white employees, especially a player like Jerry Heller. So that was some... I guess, expression of social progress. But another thing that happens around this time is some big players start to get involved. And, and right. let's give a little bit of the context of what was going on in the record business. And and a guy named Mo Austin at, at Warner and, and mm-hmm. Jerry Krasnow and Steve Ross and that crew. And what was happening with Warner Brothers Records? Okay, well, I'm not exactly sure where you want me to come in on that. Um, what was happening with Warner Brothers Records when? Well, the consolidation and around the time they start signing people like Ice-T, because I want to get to the story of, of how they help Ice-T and, and others blow up, but then it kind of blows up in their faces. All right, so this is sort of a different story. This is the story of how hip-hop sort of becomes uh, wedded to the major labels. Um, and the major labels very slowly start to dip their toe into hip-hop waters, first by 
doing deals with outside production companies like Def Jam or Tommy Boy or Cold Chillin. Um, and it is, or it's sort of these smaller labels that get production deals through the bigger labels and the smaller label staff or owners like Russell Simmons or Rick Rubin, um, you know, they, they know the culture, the larger major label, whether it be CBS or Warner does not know the culture. And so, um, the, the smaller label like a Def Jam or Tommy Boys providing a very, very valuable service in allowing the major label to have a piece of this burgeoning market without having to, you know, know it that well. Um, so that's how these smaller labels, you know, start to become majorly distributed and, you know, adds to the reach of the artists who are assigned to these labels like LL Cool J or Beastie Boys or whatever. Now, as hip hop becomes more successful uh, and as the major labels start to gain some experience through these deals, then they start to hire their own A&R people in-house. So a good example of that would be when um, a Warner label, Electra, one of the three major labels on Warner in the Warner family at the time, hires an A&R person away from Tommy Boy which is an independent label distributed by Warner Brothers, to come work in-house at Electra. So Dante Ross um, comes to Electra as an expert in the community, as an expert in the aesthetics, and he puts Electra directly in the game, in the hip-hop game. So um, this is a boon for major labels like Warner Brothers. And Warner, again, has three major labels, Warner, Electra, and Atlantic. Um, where it starts to get a little weird for the major labels is when some of the content of this formerly independently distributed stuff starts to become really, really popular with American kids. And there will always be more conservative elements, whether it's parental in nature, whether it's religious in nature, whether it's political in nature, that will be threatened by the music and lyrics um, in a genre like this. And remember, there was also backlash towards heavy metal at the time, too. So hip-hop is not the only recipient of this kind of opprobrium. So what happens in particular with Ice-T is that Ice-T is signed to a sub-label of Warner, not a, not a rap label, mind you. It's more of a punk and new wave label. Sire Records, Seymour Stein's Sire signed Ice-T um, to a major label deal. Ice-T is very successful, um, especially with college radio. Uh, and Ice-T can sell gold or platinum, you know, very well. He's also starting to do movies through, you know, Warner Records affiliate, you know, Warner Brothers Pictures. Um, so he's, he's a star in the Warner universe and very, very well-liked among the employees and everybody who deals with Ice-T. And as an artist, he wanted to do other kinds of projects, not just movies, but he had a, a metal band, like a thrash metal band that he wanted to, to, to create called Body Count. And so Body Count, this thrash metal band, also distributed via Sire Records, Sire Warner Brothers, does a song on their first album called Cop Killer. And it's literally a sort of 
thrash metal song about this fantasy of sort of revenge against uh, brutal cops. And let's hear um, it right now. Um, I'll jump in and, and, and let's hear uh, Body Count, Cop Killer. Ice-T's heavy metal, not rap band, Body Count, doing Cop Killer. And this song stirred up a shit show. Mm-hmm. Well, you notice it's not a rap song. It's a, it's a metal song. But because Body Count is fronted by this well-known rapper, um, it's hip-hop that starts to get the negative attention off of this. So what this does is it sparks a nationwide boycott of the parent company of Warner Brothers, Time Warner. Uh, and the pressure is on Warner Brothers to basically not distribute this record. And something very interesting happens is that the chairman of Warner Brothers basically steps out to defend this record on the grounds of free speech. Um, and not only that, he has to do it to preserve his relationships with other artists who, you know, might want the freedom to say what they want to say, because if he, comes out against ice tea then the next time you know i don't know somebody like a madonna or whoever you know is thinking about signing a warner and wants to do something that's edgy uh, they know they're going to get help for it so uh warner's initial impulse was to actually push back against the boycotters um and uh but it begins a sort of a years-long battle between conservative elements in American culture and politics and these corporations that are dealing in, in hip hop. Uh, it doesn't just stop with the cop killer thing. Um, it goes on with folks like C. Dolores Tucker and William Bennett um, trying to get Warner to dump the a label that they're distributing called Interscope. Uh, because they're affiliated with Death Row, which signed Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg. Um, so, and there's lots of very strange bedfellows that come out of this era. You know, you have um, conservative black parents uh, siding with conservative political forces, uh, white political forces. Ordinarily, you know, they would not be sort of in the same, same boat politically, but here they are fighting together against, you know, what they think of as smut um, to protect uh, youth, to protect black communities. Um, and, you know, because the, 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 the end of the story is that uh, Warner Brothers does dump Interscope, but Interscope just walks across the street to MCA uh, universal and gets a new deal that's worth even more. So there's really no, there, there's really no escaping sort of what, you know, what this is uh, for conservative elements. Um, and hip hop is basically here to stay in major labels, although it does engender a lot more oversight and a lot more control of uh, lyrical you know, lyrical content. And so 
the hardest stuff is going to remain on the out on the outs for a while. And there's a number. I want to go back through this in a little bit more detail and, and talk through some of the artists whose careers were ruined and some of the executives who really took it in the face. Because one thing I love about this book is you tell this story and you're pretty sympathetic to everybody, or at least let people, even somebody like C. Dolores Tucker, who utterly plays herself, you tell it from her perspective and just let the facts speak for themselves. And and so one of the stories that you tell in this book is what was happening in the big picture with Warner Brothers, which had been managed since the 60s. It was a conglomerate put together in the go-go 60s by a guy named Steve Ross, who was truly a visionary businessman. He he bought up all these companies, came out of the funeral home business, but he lets people, what they called record men back in the day, people like Mo Austin and Bob Krasnow at Electra and you know Ahmet Erdogan and Jerry Wexler at Atlantic, basically have their druthers and run their labels as independent fiefdoms. But around this time, he buys Time, Inc. and gets cancer. So you get a guy named Gerald Levin, who's now the CEO of Time when all this happens. And, and one thing that I didn't know but appreciated was these people were really trying to do the right thing. I mean, these are classic white American liberals who are sympathetic to the African-American struggle, who are sympathetic to artists' rights. And you get people like, you know, Howie Klein, uh, who's a record executive in the Warner family who really pushed Ice-T to stand tough and, and you know, speak his piece. But, you know, the ship blows up in the face. And talk about C. Dolores Tucker a little bit, like, who was she and what what scam did she try to pull that was her undoing? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, I, it's interesting that you think I'm sympathetic to see Dolores Tucker in the book. I mean, I, I, I certainly tried to tell her story, but uh, uh, my sympathies are definitely not with her. I mean, uh, essentially what I the, the story that I tell in The Big Payback is um, somebody who time and again used her public positions for personal gain. Um, she did it as secretary of state, uh, in, in, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, a position from which she was sort of routed, uh, after some, uh, inappropriate, uh, kinds of diversions of labor and money were found. Um, you know, she was apparently, uh, notorious in Philadelphia as, uh, as a real estate owner. Um, and at some point she found, um, some sort of perch, cultural perch uh, on the, I believe it was the National Council of Black Women, uh, a sort of a lobbying group for the interests of black women, which is, you know, fine and good. Um, but she was uh, approached by Dion Warwick and a few other older women who uh, were aghast at the lyrics of and the imagery that accompanied you know, the Snoop Dogg record in particular, right? Um, using the B word, the H word, um, you know, portraying women as dogs, you know, on his album cover. Uh, and there is legitimate critique to be had of that stuff. And there were women, black women in the hip hop community who were doing just that but they were doing it from a standpoint of not uh, demonizing the entire community and not demonizing black men in particular. Um, Whereas C. Dolores Tucker 
took a very wholesale approach to, uh, you know, to hip hop and didn't really come from a place of love for the culture. So there was a very much a generational divide um, among black women, among black Americans about the, uh, you know, the merits of, of hip hop. So she, Dolores Tucker takes this opportunity um, to launch this nationwide media campaign, uh, uh, complete with uh, events at record stores and protests uh, to try to pressure Time Warner to drop Interscope. Um, and for a while, she's successful, but true to form for her, she, she, she takes it too far. And, uh, I think at one point she literally tried to, um, uh, what's, what's almost extort Suge Knight, uh, into making her a financial partner in a new record company to be distributed by Warner brothers. That would be all clean music, right? Whatever that means. Um, because by the way, everybody's got a different definition of what clean is. Some people don't think that uh, people should be talking about police brutality at all, right? Uh, and that that would be clean and positive. Uh, whereas I think hip hop became a very important vector for that stuff to be talked about well before the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, hip hop was leading the um, lyrical and political charge on that. So T. Dolores Tucker is outed again for this you know, extortion scheme um, and loses her platform and loses her power in the end. And Interscope is dropped from Time Warner, but it, like I said before, it ends up back on at another major label at Universal MCA. Um, and so it really becomes all for naught. Uh, and in the end, um, we gain no, you know, it's funny, Maxine Waters was one of the few to sort of stand against C. Dolores Tucker at the time because Maxine Waters said, I'm not going to demonize uh, young, young black people uh, for this music. You know, we have to understand where this stuff is coming from. And so um, it was a very interesting time. We'll say that. Yeah. And, and it wasn't just C. Dolores Tucker and Bob Bennett. It was also Bill Clinton who the verb, you know, Sister Soldier isn't remembered as a as a writer or a rapper. She's remembered as a verb uh, to be Sister Soldier because Clinton opportunistically turned on her. And then there, are, you know, even though the Interscope and and Death Row Records, you know, and Dr. Dre and Snoop certainly ride the gangster flag mm-hmm. all the way to the top. People, other rappers like Paris, are pretty much crushed by the system. Tell us a little bit about Paris and, and where he made his mistakes. Uh, Paris. I don't think Paris made any mistakes really, except for the very end. I mean, Paris was very much, um, uh, you know, he's not a victim, but he's certainly victimized by this particular process. Paris is also somebody who I had a personal relationship with because, um, I worked for Rick Rubin at the time and it was Rick Rubin who tried to help Paris out in all of this. Essentially the, Right after Cop Killer, Harris decides he's going to release a song called Bush Killer. <laughs> Bush is the sitting president of the United States at the time. And this is supposed to come out through Tommy Boy Records, which is a subsidiary of Warner Brothers, which is a subsidiary of Time Warner. And so 
um, the cops or somebody get wind that this song is going to come out and uh, they force Tom Silverman and Tommy Boy to drop Paris. And Rick Rubin uh, is also in the Warner family uh, at American Recordings. And I worked for Rick at the time. And Rick uh, basically feels like, uh, well, I have a contract with Warner that says I can put out anything I want, right? And that came about, that clause with Time Warner came about because Rick's previous engagement with Geffen Records, which I believe was a part of MCA, right? Uh, Geffen essentially, um, you know, prevented him from releasing uh, the Ghetto Boys uh, and I believe Andrew Dice Clay uh, on, on Geffen Records, right? So, um, or rather... <clears throat> He may have had that clause with Geffen and Geffen exercised essentially, okay, you know, uh, we would rather drop your entire label than put this stuff out. And that's exactly what happened to Rick at Geffen. So he had a sort of a similar clause with Warner Brothers saying, hey, you know, if you, you don't let me put out anything I want, um, I get to walk with my masters and my record company. And this is a so, good opportunity. I want to jump in real quick and, and play our next song. And in honor of the late Bushwick Bill, who just passed away this weekend, let's hear uh, the Ghetto Boys do Size Ain't Shit. First of all, I laugh. Then what? Smack their ass like a goddamn car crash. So if you want to try your luck, come on. Play pussy, get fucked. Asshole, sleep, you get beat. You're a bad motherfucker if you dare to compete. Because dying a rock be coming out your ass, fool. And have you singing the blues? And that was the Ghetto Boys with the late great Bushwick Bill doing Size Ain't Shit, which is a Texan, uh, you know, and a short guy. That that song always meant something to me. So um, let's get back to the story of, of how all these relationships fell apart. Yeah. So anyway, um, Rick Rubin comes to me and says, hey, we're going to put out Paris. I said, well, wait a minute, Rick. You know, uh, Tommy was told that he couldn't do this. He says, yeah, but I can put on anything I want. And I said, oh, okay. Right. So basically the way that Rick wants to do it is to set up a dummy record label that he called sex records for whatever reason. He thought that was a good name for a record company. And then I'm to sort of go to Paris and orchestrate, um, how we set up this record company, um, as sort of an independent thing that we're going to help distribute. um, and, and or fund it, or you know, I forget actually the particular arrangements that we we made. But in any case, we were a Warner company, a Warner joint venture, sort of funding this song, this album with the song on it, Bush Killer. And the problem with that is, unlike Cop Killer, right? One could make an argument that Bush Killer was a direct threat on the life of the president of the United States, right? Um, and that there are laws against doing so. You could also make a very valid argument that this is political free speech and hyperbole, right? That nobody's actually saying, hey, let's assassinate President Bush. It's, a, it's a, again, another revenge fantasy. Pushing the envelope, but a revenge fantasy. And that was our position, right? Um, and Paris was uh, a you know, very nice fellow, uh, who had some legit 
political background and legit lyrical ability and legit music musical ability and um you know i felt proud of what we were doing for paris if dubious that it would succeed because once mo austin the chairman of the board of warner brothers found out that rick was trying to do this he went to rick directly and said rick i know that you have the right to do this but please don't as a favor to me they will they will shut this company down if we're we do this right in the wake of the whole cop killer thing yeah and and to go back to the cop killer thing because of the time warner merger and i don't know if Mm -hmm. steve ross could have done anything if he had lived but because of the time warner merger it wasn't just record labels anymore suddenly you know they own amusement parks like six flags and and there's all these ways to boycott these monstrous conglomerates and even though you know, Ice-T was personally beloved by the people at Time Warner. And he tell the story really vividly about how, you know, he went to the conferences and he walked the halls and, you know, he's this charming, eloquent, charismatic guy and everybody loves him and they want to stand by him. In the end, the the political times were just terrible. I mean, when everybody from Dan Quayle to Bill Clinton is attacking hip hop, you know, there's nobody giving cover, cover other than, you know, Maxine Waters and Jesse Jackson, but they're being marginalized as part of the Democratic Party at that time. And so these conglomerates, because of their size, are uniquely vulnerable to that. That's right. That's exactly right. And I want to I want to get to you've got on page three. 63 of your book, you've got three great quotes, or 383, I'm too old and nearsighted to tell the page number, but you've got three great quotes about art and censorship. One from Bushwick Bill, who said, whenever a person decides to kill somebody and uses my album as an excuse, they're full of shit. It's something that was already within your heart to go out and do, and you just wanted a good excuse. But Dr. J's, uh, NWA's Dr. J dropped any political pretensions. He said, Bottom line, we ain't doing this shit to send out no messages. We in this shit to get paid. We don't want to start no controversy. We just make records that we like listening to and that we think others will like listening to. And last one, Rick Rubin said, it's about art. Art doesn't need to be political to be worthy. Art ultimately is about what people like, whether gangster rap or porn or violent movies. Do you feel like those statements have held up over time? Each one of them in their own way. And they don't all agree, by the way. Right. Um, Yeah. I think that those points are still still valid. Um, Very much so. And then the next person to get sucked up into this, although this wouldn't cause his downfall directly, is a young guy named Tupac Shakur, who was really the first rapper when Ted Field started Interscope Records. And this is a guy who's uh, heir of the Marshall Field fortune but a very formidable businessman in his own right. And he brings in Jimmy Iovine, legendary producer, Tom Petty, John Lennon, et cetera, forms Interscope Records. And the guy wants to make important records. And his idea of important records is Tupac Shakur. What was it about young Tupac, who at the time was just sort of a peripheral figure in the digital underground posse? I mean, what was it that, that somebody like Field had the, you know, how could he tell that Tupac was going to be so important? I don't know. I mean, um, you know, Pac uh, had a certain um, aura about him. You know, for me, he wasn't always the greatest lyricist, uh, you know, in terms of delivery and rhythm, uh, but he, or even the poetry, but, you know, he had a certain 
um, aura to him. Uh, and as a performer, he was, um, you know, unparalleled. Uh, and as a personality, he was certainly unparalleled. So it could have been any one of those things that Ted feel. And listen, it, and it could have been, there's an equal chance it could have been successful or not successful. Nothing. If anybody gets anything from a book like mine is that no success is predestined and that, um, there's no such thing as an artist, you know, making a record and it just, the record being so good that, uh, you know, the rest is history. It's not, it takes an army, a legion of people who believe in an artist to get a project going. And so Tupac was lucky enough um, to have somebody like Atron Gregory managing him. He was lucky enough to have, uh, you know, been aided in many ways by Shock G of Digital Underground to have the sort of platform. And he was lucky uh, or blessed, depending on your view, to have somebody like Ted Field in his corner and Tom Wally. And so all of those ingredients helped to create Tupac, right? In addition to, you know, Tupac's own family history, you know, he came from a family of activists, real activists, like, you know, militant activists who had paid their dues uh, politically uh, in this country, including his mother, Afini. Um, So all of that stuff became ingredients in the, in the soup that, you know, we call the artist Tupac Shakur. And then Within that soup is also the person, the man himself, the young man who um, has certain talents, um, certain uh, abilities, and certain proclivities uh, that make him a compelling person. Um, and those are all the ingredients of the package that we call Tupac Shakur, right? And let's so, let's hear a little Tupac right quick. I want to hear a song called Soldier's Story that caused it quite a bit of trouble. And that was Tupac Shakur's Soldier Story, which I wouldn't blame the song, but a cop was killed, a bootleg copy of Tupac's album Tupacalypse was playing in the car, and somebody decided to sue the record label over it. Mm-hmm. Right. What's your take on uh, that whole kerfluffle in this context, and why was Tupac able to get through it? Well, because it was bullshit. <laughs> That's why. <laughs> I mean, there's no, there's no, uh, you know, again, here's a person who uh, I believe shot at a state trooper or something like that, if I, if I recall, and was blaming uh, Tupac and Tupac's lyrics for his own actions, which goes back to that Bushwick Bill quote that you mentioned. Um, and it was bull. Uh, you know, Pac. And Pac's lyrics don't force anybody to do anything um, except maybe think, right? So uh, Pac was just, again, as, an, as a Time Warner artist, was also caught up in this whole Time Warner kerfuffle. So, uh, yeah, uh, that was, um, that's, that's my take on that. 
<laughs> and I think that's pretty succinct and, and fulfilling. And, and uh, you know, the book is The Big Payback. We've talked about it before. And I'd love to have you back on. Again, been very generous with your time because there's so much of this book. And the hip-hop history really, frankly, is the music history of the 80s and 90s in America and on into the 21st century. So Dan Charnas, The Big Payback, The History of the Business of Hip-Hop. Thanks for coming on the show, Dan. You're so welcome. Thank you. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at LetItRollCast. Come back Thursdays for our new show focusing on Mike Judge's Tales from the Tour Bus and next Monday when author Mark Blake returns to the show to discuss his book Comfortably Numb, The Inside Story of Pink Floyd. Payback, the history of the business of hip-hop, is published by Berkeley. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letterrollpodcast.com. of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only, right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.